Let us begin our sermon with prayer. Lord Jesus, by your gracious coming into the world, you destroyed death and made all things new. Grant that we may never tire of proclaiming your salvation to the ends of the earth. For you live and reign with the Father and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Our text for our sermon is Isaiah chapter 9, verses 2 through 7. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. For those living in the land of the shadow of death, the light has dawned. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you like the joy at harvest time, like the celebration when people divide the plunder. For you have shattered the yoke that burdened them. You have broken the bar on their shoulders and the rod of their oppressor, as you did in the day of Median. Every boot that marched in battle and the garments rolled in blood will be burned. They will be fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. The authority to rule will rest on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no limit to his authority and no end to the peace he brings. He will rule on David's throne and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from now on into eternity. The zeal of the Lord of armies will accomplish this. This is the word of our Lord. Did you catch those words? Verse 6, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. Well, this is the reason why we have gathered together, isn't it? It's the reason for the season. And so today's sermon theme is just that. Christ, the Savior, is born. Usually an ordinary child is not found lying in a cattle feed trough. In fact, is that at all what you would expect from God taking on human flesh? And if we fast forward 33 years, we find a man hanging naked on a cross, the torture device in one of the cruelest ways mankind have ever invented to putting a person to death. It doesn't really seem like there's somebody special there, does it? It doesn't seem like that is God having taken on human flesh. But our text tells us, The people who are walking in the darkness have seen a great light. A light has shone upon those who dwell in the land of very thick darkness. Isaiah has in the backdrop the Babylonian captivity, but light shone in Babylon, even though they'd be away from the temple and stuff. No, here there is a great imagery, a greater fulfillment. Because if you've ever been, even in a room you're familiar with, in the middle of the room and the lights go out and it is pitch black and you're groping around and, and finally you think you found a wall or something and then you feel something and, oh, I'm not where I thought I was at in the room. Well, imagine being in thick darkness in a room you've never seen before and the lights are never coming on and the room is vast. You see, the darkness is our ignorance about salvation. For us human beings, we have built into us, because we have a sinful nature, we have a natural religion that is actually opposed to the true way we are saved. In our natural religion, we think that you do something to get a blessing from God. And we think that you keep the law and then you are saved by keeping the law. And in very pharisaical ways, we have to ignore the fact that our very thoughts condemn us as being sinful. 
sinful. And so we turn around and try to bribe God. And in fact, in our ignorance, we think we know better than God. And we'll tell God how he can use his powers to serve and help us when we don't even know what's going to happen five minutes from now. This is the darkness we live in. And we grope around thinking we deserve salvation, that we earn our salvation. And that's why in Revelation, John mentions the mark of the beast that falls short of the perfect number seven. And that's on the hand and on the forehead. Because work righteousness, the idea that we earn our salvation, permeates our thoughts in our hands. And look at every religion. In every religion, you have to do something in order to basically obligate God or get God's blessings to save you, which is just obligating God. True Christianity in its truth and its purity is the only one that stands out in this way. And that's why John in chapter 1 of his gospel tells us Jesus is the light no darkness can overcome. Because we're stuck groping around in the darkness of our sin thinking... Hey, we deserve salvation, thinking we earn salvation. And then the light of Christ shines on us. That light comes with the law, which shows us that even our thoughts condemn us. But then it shines especially with God's grace that says this is why Christ became incarnate, to be the light. He is our Savior. Brothers and sisters in Christ, Christ the Savior is born. He brings light, the light of His Word, which shows us we need a Savior and shows us that baby in the manger, that man hanging on the cross. That is our salvation. That is God having taken on human flesh to show us that He has done. He has to do the work to save us. Verse 3 continues, You have caused the nation to become great, which you have not made the joy great for it. They will be joyful in your presence as the joy in the harvest, as are they ecstatic when they receive the share of the plunder. Here we have the picture of being able to enjoy instead of being hauled off into captivity after having planted crops and everything else, not being able to enjoy them, being able to enjoy the fruits of your labor without somebody stealing them, but also being the conqueror. Israel, in a warlike sense, has never conquered the world, nor, according to Scripture, is it ever going to. But spiritual Israel... That's the church, that's the bride of Christ, that's you and I combined into the body of Christ, the invisible church. We have tremendous joy. And as we look at the joy we have, first to amplify it, we ask the question, in what does this world find joy? Is it the gifts underneath the tree as in having more material possessions? Is it relationships with spouses and stuff who they're going to die? Everything in which the world finds joy, because they're in that darkness, slips from their hands. They cannot hold on to it forever. But you and I have the joy in knowing we are saved. We have the joy in knowing no matter how bad things are in this world, there is something better coming. But we have the joy in knowing now that God is our Savior and we are alive in Him now. We are a member of His bride now. There is a wonderful joy and nothing expresses that better than the joy that comes as we gather together to sing the wonderful Christian hymns that Christ the Savior is born. Christ the Savior is born. He brings light. He brings joy. But let me express to you a little bit more where that joy is found. That comes in verse four. 
because you have shattered the yoke which was its burden and the rod which was upon its shoulder and the staff of its slave driver as in the day of Medean. Gideon, during the time of the judges, was the deliverer God sent. The Medeanites were harassing Israel, wanting to enslave them. And when an army of volunteers was put together, God says, this is too many. And he knocks it down to such a small number that it would be impossible for them to win a military victory. And then through God's plan, they covered their torches with jars of clay. And when Gideon shouted out, they smashed those jars and all their lights went up and the Medeanites ran in fear. A victory God gave through a miracle with a fraction of an army intentionally reduced to show that this was God's work. Now again, the backdrop of Babylon is God's discipline hauling the Israelites into captivity is behind this, but there's a greater yoke. This is a foreshadow of the yoke of slavery you and I have to sin, death, and the devil. You put a yoke on an animal, a beast of burden, to make it do the work you want it to do. And you use that rod and you smack a beast of burden with it to direct it and make it do your bidding, to follow your commands. You and I, in the darkness of our sin, as I said, are slaves to sin, death, and the devil. And do you think the devil really wants the best for you? He'll tempt you with the joys of this world, but he's actually just using your sinful nature to enslave you. Some of the ways in which he does that is he whispers in your ear, oh, this isn't a sin. How could God even be concerned about that? How dare God even consider that a sin? And then once you commit it, he uses your sinful nature to whisper in your ear, how dare you? God couldn't possibly forgive you. What a horrible sin you've committed. All we can do is serve the devil unless we are freed from the chains of our slavery. This is why that baby who is true God hiding his deity is lying in a manger. He spares himself no miseries of this world. He doesn't give himself a cush life that you would expect of a king because he is born to suffer every temptation you and I suffer. And yet as true God, he will feel the pains of temptation, but he'll never fall to them. So that he can credit you with his perfect righteousness. His keeping of the law for you. And that man seeming to be railroaded, hanging on that torture device of the cross. If he were not God, he would not be able to withstand an eternity of punishment for your sins and my sins. And yet do it in three hours time. Christ brings freedom. By shining the light on us that we need a Savior and that we have a Savior. The Holy Spirit gives us the faith that unites us to that Savior and we suddenly have freedom. Freedom from our slavery to sin, death, and the devil. We may still die because we have a sinful nature yet, but like a woman who's about to give birth, she does not look forward to the labor pains, but she looks forward to holding the child. There is a freedom from death because we know there's something better. Even now, you and I have a freedom from the condemnation of the law. Recall as I talked about Christ bringing light, we think we earn salvation. 
in our natural condition. In a very pharisaical way, we will impose burdens on people who struggle with different sins than we do, looking down our nose at them and telling them, you have to do this to be saved. You have to dress the right way when you come to church in order to be saved. You have to look the right way and you have to have the right look of misery or joy on your face in order to be saved. You have to have your emotions manipulated the right way in order to be saved. All of that, like the Pharisees, are people putting man-made laws on you But you are freed from the law as a means of salvation. You are freed from the law's condemnation when you are connected in Christ. You have freedom. Freedom because you are saved. Not freedom to run out and sin as your sinful nature sees fit. That's actually slavery. Freedom to struggle against it and to glorify God in your daily lives because he's given you that new person. So we see Christ the Savior is born. He brings light, he brings joy, he brings freedom. Now verse 5 says, because every boot which tramples in rhythm and garment which is saturated in blood will be for burning. It is fuel for the fire. If you've ever watched the old black and white news footages of World War II with the Nazis stepping in goose step, the way their boots rhythmically fell, that was meant to be intimidating. Armies develop marches in which the right foot, then the left foot stomp at the same time to make an intimidating noise. This is the image of Babylon coming in to destroy Israel. This is the image of whatever is going on, whatever the devil throws at us, to try to make us lose our freedom, joy, and light. Every garment which is saturated in blood, that's the picture of what happens when the war is over and the enemy has won and there's blood everywhere. But it says it will be for burning. It is fuel for the fire. Ultimately, in the new heavens and the new earth, Christ is going to have completely destroyed sin, so there will be no war. And so he brings peace But there's a peace that you and I have right now. You and I have a peace because we have been freed from our slavery to the devil, which means we know that God is not our enemy. And believe me, God is a very gracious God. But in the long run, you do not want him for an enemy because God is all-powerful, all-knowing, and present everywhere. And so it is when we face the miseries and strife of this life, we have a peace in knowing it might be a discipline from God because he doesn't want us to fall into sin and lose our salvation. But in which case, that's actually for our good. It may not be a discipline for God. It may be a cross we are bearing like being persecuted for being Christians, but God has in mind to use us to convert somebody else, maybe one of the persecutors. You and I have peace in this life knowing our sins are forgiven for we sin daily. We have peace knowing in the next life we will not have sin. But we have peace knowing whether it's persecution for being a Christian, whether it's economic loss, hardship, burden, whether it's diseases like COVID-19. We know that when we have strife and hardships in our life, God is actually using them for our good. And so we have peace. Christ the Savior is born. He brings the light of salvation. He brings the joy of salvation. He brings the freedom of salvation. And he brings the peace of salvation. And so we arrive at verse 6 that tells us, Because a child has been born for us, a son has been given to us, and the rule will be upon his shoulder. 
Grammatically, the definite article for the rule is monadic. It means this is the rule of all rules. Jesus is the Lord of lords. He's the King of kings. And so the ultimate rule, all other people who rule in government and stuff are subject to him. The ultimate governing and authority is upon his shoulder. He carries it. This is why he lived, died, and ascended. He's in heaven, going right back to what I talked about a minute ago, that anything that the world would consider bad happening in your life, he's actually ruling to use it for your good and the good of others. And we're told his name will be called Wonder of a Counselor. Now, when we elect presidents, they pick a cabinet to give them advice and help them make decisions you get somebody who's over the army. You get somebody who's over your schools. But Jesus is true God. He's all-knowing. He's all-powerful. He's present everywhere, which means he doesn't need people to give him advice. He's the wonder of a counselor. He knows everything. And yet you can turn to him for advice. It never ceases to amaze me how I can take a look at things going on with my brothers and sisters in Christ or my own life and say, you know, this is against the Bible, and yet you keep doing it. When does it dawn on you that this is bad? The scriptures give us wonderful advice. It's Jesus' counsel for us as he tells us he has washed us clean in his blood. Then he's called Mighty God. We've covered that. And he's called Everlasting Father. Now, we don't want to confuse him for God the Father, but the point that's being made is here... He's the good shepherd. He loves us. He loves us like a father. He's certainly our brother. He's certainly the son. But what's being told here is not like a king who looks at his subjects as tax revenue, people that make his life cushiony. It's that he looks at you as he rules over the universe as if you were his beloved child. Because Jesus has paid the price for our adoption. And then he's called Prince of Peace. We covered that a minute ago. Verse 7 continues, there is no end for the increase of that rule and for peace. Christ's kingdom doesn't have boundaries. It's his rule in the hearts of believers. It began with Adam and Eve when he promised them that he would be the savior. He would take on human flesh as the seed of the woman. And it continues through all eternity. To establish it and sustain it upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom with justice and with righteousness from now until forevermore. There is no sin in Christ's kingdom, even though you and I sin daily, because our sin is washed clean. And when that kingdom is made visible, all sin will be disposed of, everything sinful locked away, so that there will only be righteousness and justice. The zeal of the Lord of multitudes will do this. This whole entire text is God's promise. If you think of the Lord of multitudes, the Lord of armies, think of those angels crying out at night to the shepherds, glory to God in the highest. The angels are part of his army, but you and I are part of his army. He is true God and he can call on everything in creation to work as his army. And it says the zeal. God is zealous to save you. He was zealous to take on human flesh. He, although it was miserable, was glad to go to the cross to save you and rule for you. And so we see Christ the Savior is born. He brings an everlasting kingdom. He's made you a member of it. Yes, brothers and sisters in Christ, how beautiful the words of verse 6. Because a child has been born for us, a son has been given to us. 
Christ the Savior is born. He brings the light of salvation to you. He brings the joy of salvation to you. He brings the freedom of salvation to you. He brings the peace of being saved to you. And He brings an everlasting kingdom to you because He rules in your heart and has made you a citizen of that kingdom. Amen. And now the brilliant light of Christ will continue to shine on our hearts and his light continue to guide our feet into the path of peace. Amen.